Our scripture this morning comes from John chapter 13, verses 13 through 17. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, please open them up to um, Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Was it a demanding conversation that Jesus overhears among some of the Jewish religious teachers? Was it a snarky look? One of the teachers gave a worshiper entering the temple wearing a do-rag and a tattoo rather than a suit and tie? I don't know. Maybe it was nothing outside that you could see with your eyes. Maybe some thoughts were running through an arrogant leader's head and Jesus happened to hear them. He could do that, you know. And he felt like this guy needed an attitude overall. But still, I don't know. All I do know is Jesus says, you want to hear a story? <laughs> and just like that little boy, the people said, sure. And so he shares a parable, a made-up story designed to make you think, and I think it's going to make us all think. Now, a guy by the name of Dr. Luke records this story, puts it in his life history of Jesus, but he prologues that story with these comments. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves and they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's Luke's little narration there. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And here's the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. Now, the Pharisee was standing by himself, and he prayed this way. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. Why, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But there was a tax collector standing far off who wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, Oh God, please be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he said. And Jesus then said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Lord in heaven, thank you that you are the one who exalts lowly people. In some ways, every single one of us in this room finds our place, finds ourselves in low places at times where we just feel like even you can't get to us, can't help, can't strengthen, can't enable us to overcome. So we come this morning with our heads bowed saying, oh God, forgive us, we're a sinner. And we need your mercy and grace poured out over us. We know we're not the only ones who believe that. John Standers is doing a great job at Christ Church leading them, and we pray for their church as they meet this morning in the Arts Center. Please, God, help all that 
disciples of this community who realize we are sinners saved by grace only. To knit our hearts together in that humility, in that gratefulness, so that the light of our gratefulness truly might shine and the devil could never get out. We ask this in Jesus' name and everybody said. Now some of you may be thinking, what a strange text to start with on our last message before we select elders for this church. Especially one reportedly to be aimed at the qualities of men that were looking to lead us. This text though, this week for some reason, just wouldn't leave me alone. Didn't seem optional for this morning. That it was necessary equipment for this message, for this church at this time. So while Jesus' story is still fresh on your mind, let me ask you which of the two men are qualified to be an elder. The short answer is neither. Now one of them is more on track with the Lord's kingdom than the other, and that would be the one Jesus said went home justified. That would be the fellow who went home full of God's pleasure and forgiveness. The other went home full of himself and God's disappointment. But neither of them are ready to be an elder. Although I have an idea most naturally who would get most votes in most churches for an elder, don't you? But this isn't your typical church. And I mean that. I've been hanging around you for a while. This isn't your typical church. And so I'm asking you to have better eyes when you're looking among us for men to lead us. The religious teacher in Jesus' story isn't ready to be an elder. And we know that thanks to Jesus' encounter with another religious leader, Nicodemus. Remember John 3? Nicodemus is a highly respected religious teacher himself. But he comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness. And he wants to know, though, what's, what's my next step so that I can be honoring to God? What's the next step that I need to take so that I can be everything God wants me to be? And Jesus says, buddy, you need to start over. You need to be born again. If it's the reign of God that you're after, it's the kingdom of God that you want to be a part of. And so I think the same could be said of the Pharisee of Jesus in our story this morning. He needs to start over. He's not ready to lead God's kingdom. What he needs to do is get his lunch pail and his new pen and pencil set and head to the first class of knowing God, elementary. He's not ready for spiritual leadership. He's ready for a spiritual bottle, Jesus says. He needs to start by emptying himself and stop relying upon his own righteousness so that he could be filled with God's righteousness and God's power. Now the tax collector which for those of you who are new to church and kind of new to this scripture thing, he wasn't a very respected man in the community. He's not a liked man in the community. You see, tax collectors were considered traitors by Israelites, by the Hebrews, because these tax collectors assisted the Roman government in collecting taxes for them and didn't mind at all if they collected a few extra taxes for themselves. People hated them. As a matter of fact, it was often said they gave sinners a bad name. But Jesus lifts this one up. Jesus says he was justified with God. He was right with God. He was redeemed by God. Why? Because Jesus understands. Jesus sees. Jesus knows this man needs God. And he expresses it. He cries out for it. That, my friend, that, my brother, that, my sister, is the foundation of the kingdom of God. It's salvation by grace 
through faith. And it has to be the foundation of any man's life to be considered a leader for the kingdom of God. We're saved by grace through faith, Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 8, not by our efforts so nobody can boast, so nobody has a right to get haughty, so nobody has a right to think they're better than anybody else. No haughtiness tolerated here. Only humility is welcome here. Self-reliance is not to lead here. Only God-reliance is to lead here. Amen? Are you seeing that? Are you tracking with me with that? Well, the tax collector gets that. But while he may be Jesus' choice for disciple of the week, he still isn't elder material yet. And that's because to be a leader, his repentance and his redemption needs to be lived out for some time, at least long enough, not to prove that he's worthy of God, but to prove that he's worthy to lead the people of God. It takes time to lead. There has to be more than just an understanding of God's grace. There's got to be a living out of God's grace that reveals that God's grace really is at work. A grace that leaks out from God's extravagant forgiveness and God's extraordinary spirit that's present in his life. Which is why I would say neither is ready to be an elder, to be a leader. But Jesus does show us that one of them is closer to the kingdom than the other. And when the people heard this parable, when the people heard this made-up story, you know what they said? No way. No way. That's not the way God sees people. It was a gotcha parable. It was a surprise parable. It was a scandalous parable. But you know what? Grace is always scandalous. Always. Jimmy, you mean to tell me that this obviously religious fella who looks like he might need a few tweaks or some, he's less pleasing to God than this known sinner who looks like he needs a complete makeover? Well, don't take my word for it. Take Jesus's. Yes. Only one went home justified. Only one went home right with God. The other went home full of himself and disappointed by God. And I hope you see this if you want to be a part of a God-made family instead of a man-made family. Now that Pharisee in the story, he can put together a church. Wouldn't be the Lord's church, but he could put together a church. He'd be respected. He'd be a leader there. But it wouldn't be the Lord's church. Because God's not interested in self-righteous men. He's interested in Jesus-made righteous men. And why is that so significant today? Because if our leaders don't nail that one down. If they don't have that just oozing out of them, the church won't. It just won't because the church is never going to outgrow its elders. It's never going to outlead its leaders. And so we don't want to settle for being a religious fraternity. We want to be God's family, amen? We want to be his family. And so for the next 27 minutes, we're about to go over some qualities that we hope to see in a man that... At the time of this church, in the life of this church right now, are godly, God-honoring, God-graced, God-empowered. And they may not have always been qualities in that man's life. Because you see, we're not looking for men without marks on their past. We're looking for men who have the marks of Jesus on them now. Not just momentarily, it's a lifestyle for them. If they've broken God's will in the past, we want to know if they repented of that rebellion, embraced God's grace, and lived a life of repentance and empowerment by the Spirit. 
Paul tries to teach that not just to one church, but to all of his churches. But when he has one in mind in Ephesus, he's saying, Timothy, here's some of those qualities you'd find in a man like that. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the office as overseer, he desires a good work. An overseer then must be blameless. The husband of one wife. Sober, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not given to drunkenness. Not violent, not greedy for money, but patient. Not argumentative, not covetous. One who manages his own household well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to manage his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? He must not be a newly converted believer so that he does not become prideful and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good reputation among those who are outsiders so that he does not fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. Do you notice twice in that text he says, devil's not going to sit by and just let you elect anybody else, anybody that you want to, and um, him not be involved. So be careful. So I want to be careful as I proceed from now on. Do you know who those words were written by? An ex-terrorist. Isn't that crazy? An ex-terrorist got to write over a third of the Bible, over the third of the New Testament. At one time, in his pursuit of God, the Apostle Paul was convinced putting Christians in jail and if need be killing them was the God-honoring thing to do. But God, who is rich in mercy, opened his eyes to see the truth about how wrong that was. And he forgave him, and through the power of the Spirit, transforms him from one of those Pharisees Jesus made up a story about. To a man reliant on God and his goodness, not his own. This ex-terrorist, stunning, became an apostle. An apostle in Jesus' church, not only a Christian... Not even a leader of Christians, but a leader who trained leaders of Christians. That's nuts. How's that possible? Glad you asked. Because our great God is good at redeeming and restoring misguided messes. Isn't that great? And I know some of you are going, really? Now, I know that sounds right, but, but really? Hear me again. An ex-terrorist got to write a third of the New Testament. A misguided mess to that degree can be used by God. And so can you. So can you. What do we mean by misguided mess? Paul's going to show you in his letter to the church at Corinth. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Yeah, we kind of do, but don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If you fall in that category and you live in that category, you will not be in the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. <laughs> that's what some of you were. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of the living God. That's how good God is at cleaning up misguided messes and turning them into the master's ministers. He does that. That's the kind of 
misguided mess I am. I needed his grace to absolutely save me. To absolutely empower me to do anything for his good. God can only make his leaders out of men and women who understand that. Some of our men are going to be asked to be elders because you see in them the life of Christ living in them. But you may not know some of the stuff that's going on in their past. And it may keep them from wanting to say, I can't because what I've done is too ugly and what I've done still haunts me. And that's why we need to hear this message today. Because it's not about what you've done, it's about who you are. It's about who you've been living as. It's who we see you as. All God has is misguided messes in his kingdom. All, that's all he's got. Paul shows us even a murderous past, a thieving past, a greedy past, a drunken past, an adulterous past, doesn't disqualify someone biblically to be a leader. He's an apostle for heaven's sake. What Paul wants us to look for in the men that we're trying to find among us who would lead this church for the next 10 years, the next decade, is, is God at work in them now? Not momentarily, but is, is he a part of their life? Is he gracing it? Is he empowering it? And it's just so obvious. That's who we're looking for. That's who Paul's encouraging us to look for. Well, what would that look like in some men's life? Here's a couple of qualities. The first one. Do they even have a desire to lead? Isn't that an interesting place to start? Are they so impressed by the grace that they've been given, so impressed by the empowering that God's doing in them that they want to share it with others? And if, if someone's recognizing that they could be a leader, well, yeah, if you, maybe, I may make some mistakes, I may not do it well, but, but if you see that in me, sure, the better, the more that we can get loving and leading on people to get them into this Christ that I've come to love and who loves me and who's, who's changing, you bet I'll, I'll do what I can to help. Now, with their personality, it may not come out like that, all right? That's coming through Jimmy's personality. Kind of the cocker spaniel personality, if you know what I mean. But we need to know, is this something they want to do? No, we don't want to drag anybody into this. But we want to know that God's so working in their lives, they can't help but be a part of a team helping to bring that to other people. Number two, they're above reproach. Not that in some areas of their life they may have messed up royally. Not that they're perfect men or men that act that way. But there's no glaring signs of dysfunction in their life. No obvious signs of dysfunction in their walk with God. Now, there ought to be nothing present in their life that would cause any one of you to say, are you kidding me? <laughs> no way. Impossible. Did, have you seen? Not, did you know what he did? You know what he's done? No. It, have you seen this? I have. No way. Probably not a guy you want to have as an elder. They're above reproach. People should be excited about the men that they have leading them. They need to be trustworthy, lovable, and easy to see yourself following. Or they don't need to be an elder. Number three, are they a one-woman man? Are they a one-woman man? Which is exactly how the Greek reads in this particular text. So, we're looking for men to lead us who are obviously a one-woman kind of guy. 
A man who's not flirtatious with other women? A man whose wife is a better person because she's married to this particular person? His heart belongs to her. Her heart belongs to him. And it's obvious. Some of your translations say the husband of one wife. Now, for some of us, we've been taught that that ruled out men in the past who've been married more than once for whatever reason. Those who lost a wife to death and remarried, sorry, couldn't be an elder, that's a husband of more than one wife. Whether they failed in a marriage experience and yet remarried and were the leader in a great marriage for decades, sorry, can't be considered for an elder, the husband of more than one wife. Now, while there are some arguments that support that, maybe you know them, there are better arguments this preacher believes that support that what Paul's speaking about here is polygamy. In a culture where polygamy existed even among the Hebrew people, Paul makes it clear, a man married to more than one wife, not going to be an elder. That doesn't fit the example that Jesus taught his disciples. One man for one woman in one marriage, that's all. And if you think that's not a current problem, it's a growing problem in America. And it's always been a problem in third world countries. This last summer when our team went over to Ghana, we were not prepared for this to be the most talked about problem in the church over there. But it was. They held a, a, a seminar, a, a kind of a family encampment this December. And they tried to have some other classes on other topics, but this one kept dominating all the classes. So I guess we still need Paul's words on this issue today as much as we needed them then when he issued them first. Anyone who's married to more than one wife can't be a leader in the church, can't be an elder. Now, is that to say that a man whose wife died and has remarried can never be an elder regardless of, of who that man is in Christ and what their marriage looks like? I don't think that was ever intended by Paul. Or to say that a man who was divorced regardless of the reasons and has repented of that and empowered to be a better husband and has been married for two, three decades, he can't be an elder? I don't think that's what Paul intends here. And the reason I say that is, is because it's not consistent with the story of the scriptures and us being a redeeming church. It just doesn't fit. Someone says, well, give me an example of such a marriage. Jeff and Debbie Giles. His wife left him when he was young. Left him with two kids. He got custody of both of them. He later married Debbie and she helped him to raise those girls. I share with our elders that if Jeff and Debbie had not moved, it would be a travesty for us not to have been able to consider them for eldership here. And when I shared that, another one of our elders said, well, he was at the top of my list. I didn't even know he was divorced. And I go, bingo! That's what we're talking about. A man who's so married, so vibrantly, in such a loving, caring way, and has been for decades, you wouldn't even know he had ever had something in his past. That's what I'm talking about. Now, if you still think that, I'm sorry, I couldn't put that man's name up to be an elder. You have other elders here who agree with you. There's some who agree with what I'm trying to teach and share this morning with my heart, because it is a part of my heart. But you know what we're going to do? Invite you to take that nominating paper and fill in who you think needs to be an elder. And I may put someone's name on there that I think needs to be, and you know what, if they're not thought of, by a large number of people here, they won't make eldership here. And we're going to love each other and maybe agree to disagree about this. And we're certainly going to study it some more because that's about all the time I had to talk about it. I've talked about it a little bit too long anyway. What we can't agree on is this. We want a guy who is a one-woman 
man guy. Amen? Another quality is this, that they're self-controlled. Which simply means the guy's got some discipline in his life. He's not controlled by things. He's not a glutton, but he likes good food. He's not a drunkard, but he likes good wine. He works out, but he's not freaked out and building his whole life around getting a six-pack abs like I have. Yeah, I knew he needed some comic relief. He golfs, but he doesn't set his whole calendar around his tea times. Now, he may not do any of those things. He may not drink wine. He may not play golf. He may not, may not even eat good food. He eats that green stuff, you know, that doesn't have any taste or calories. But he's not a man who's ruled by his appetites and his desires. No, his love of the Lord rules him, and you can't miss it. His pursuit of the Lord rules him, and everything else takes a back seat. If there are some things that don't take a back seat, I mean, if he lives for those things, you may need to think twice about calling him an elder. Number five, they're respectable and honorable. He's a man looked at with high regard and who looks at others with high regard. Now, this goes beyond simple politeness and, and niceties. This is a man who's not demeaning. He's not insulting. He's not prejudicial. He's not belittling. He's the kind of man who makes any other person in his presence feel like a better person. Number six, he's hospitable. We spent an entire series called Home Depot on what it means to have hospitality. And if there's anybody who's leading in that, it needs to be one of our elders that's leading in that. When they say, mi casa es su casa, they need to mean it. That their place isn't just a, a haven for them and their families, but no, no, it's a haven for those who may not even have a family. That's huge. That's absolutely an essential, Paul says. How's a guy doing with his casa? Number seven, is he capable of teaching? Now, he doesn't have to be a Ron Shade. He doesn't have to be a Frank Greer, but he needs to be able to teach others about the hope that's in his heart. That God's wrecked his life with grace and is empowering with his, his, his spirit. And, and here's how you can be a part of that too. He's got to be capable of teaching. Number eight, they're not to be given to drunkenness. Now some translations say they're not to be addicted to much wine. Now that sounds like a no-brainer, right? Because we've already talked about self-discipline, right? To be in control of himself as a person. And an elder must be self-controlled. But apparently it was needed here. Paul could have said, all right, if a guy wants to be a church leader, no drinking at all. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Now, you may know some guys, but you're not quite sure that you can, you can put forth as an elder because you saw them at Chili's having a little beer. That's not what Paul says here. It's not a man who's a teetotaler. It's a man who realizes when enough is enough. And it's not even a guy who, who was drunk one time in his life, back in college or whatever, maybe had a, a lifestyle that was that way. Is that who he is now? Does he constantly, is he constantly seen as a drunk in public? Is he seen as a drunk even at his home constantly? If so, he's not worthy to be an elder. We've got some stuff we've got to deal with first that has control of his life rather than him being in control of that. He's not to be violent or argumentative. I read this quality this week, and I remember the old saying, to a man who walks around with a hammer in his hand, every problem looks like a nail. I don't know where I heard that years ago, but it stayed with me. I don't want a guy with a hammer in his hand being an elder. Do you? You know who I'm talking about. 
It's almost like they're looking for a fight. It's almost impossible to gain consensus with them about anything because they're not about consensus. They're about winning. Let me tell you what, you can get jammed up quickly in an eldership when someone has that kind of an attitude. This church has seen it. I've seen it firsthand in my I don't want to go back there. So we don't want to ask anyone who has a violent reputation or an argumentative reputation to be an elder. Now, does that mean he's not a man ready for a fight? Absolutely not. We need some guys who will go to war, but not every single issue, all right? Because if you've got a guy who's so soft and so gentle that he's afraid to shoot at the wolves occasionally, the sheep get hurt. You need men who don't like conflict but aren't afraid of it. Number 10, they can't be lovers of money. Doesn't mean that they can't have money. Doesn't mean that they can't enjoy money. He's just a man with whom it's obvious he knows that's not his money. It's the Lord's. And you see it. You see it. Money doesn't control him. He sees money for what it is, a tool, not a treasure. It's not what he's after most. He's after what Jesus can do with that money most, not what he can do with it. Number 11, they're leaders of well-ordered homes. Here's what the Bible teaches about the home. Are you ready? You still awake? Okay. The home is the proving ground for ministry. Not in some assignment you give to a deacon, no. The home is the proving ground for ministry. Why? Because God realized there's few things that are going to test a man's flesh than how he treats his wife and how he loves on his kids. That's why the home's a proving ground for ministry. So before you place any man up for a leadership position who's going to lead this entire church, how's he doing in leading just his little home? In loving on his wife and his kids, serving his wife and serving his kids. Take your closest look here, all right? When you're looking for, is a man qualified to be an elder in the church? Is he serving his wife like Jesus was served and served? Is he not ready yet to be an elder because of that? Paul says so. If he's not living as a servant, if he's not living as someone who's pouring himself out for those whom he's been given charge of in his home, it's not enough for us to do a background check on him, all right? We're going to do those. For everyone who's put up as an elder, we're going to do a police background check. I'm asking you, would you do a backyard check, okay? What's going on in their backyard first? That lead, let that lead your understanding about whether or not he's elder qualified or not. Number 12, is he a mature believer? Here's why our tax collector friend isn't ready for eldership, remember? I don't know if this is just a moment in his life. I don't know if it's just a flash in the pan when he says, I need you, God, and I'm so sorry. I want to know if that's been a constant need for him. I need you this morning and next week and next month. And, and that dependency on him, you just can't miss. Is scripture referring to age here? I don't think so. I've seen great elders in their 40s because they have battle scars on them from overcoming failures, from, from dealing with attacks from the enemy and seeing victory over those things. And they're mature beyond their years, but they're 40 years old. Does he have a good reputation in the community is the last one. Man, Paul's sharp. God's covering all the bases here. Look at his kids. Look at his character. Look at his bride. Look at those who worship with him. Look at those who work with him. 
Does anybody there want him on their team? Does he have that kind of reputation outside and inside the church? Because he's legit. He's the same guy both places. And we know it. That's who we want to have leading our church. Well, there they are. Those are the key qualities that Paul's inviting us to look for in the men that we want to lead his church. Not ours. His church. Now I want you to notice that there was only one skill in the entire list. One. And that is that he would be an apt teacher. That he would be capable of teaching and witnessing to others about the hope that he has in his life. All others point us to who the man is. Here's one thing I need to see him doing specifically. We're going to cover this in in a moment a little bit more thoroughly. But is he capable of teaching people? Let me wrap this up by talking about very quickly, three minutes, what elders do. Let's start with a text in 1 Peter chapter 3 where Peter's writing specifically to some elders and says, here's what I need for you guys to be about. But that would be a good place to start. So I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, you shepherd the flock that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And likewise, you who are younger... You be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Look where we came back around to. What's good for the sheep is good for the sheep's leaders. Humility is a necessity to do two things. The first one is that he cares for his sheep. He's able to set aside. Philippians 2 is the picture for this, where Jesus set aside his right to be God with God. And the Spirit, he set that aside and came and got in this world with us. The type of humility that would call a man to go get in some stuff he really would rather not get into. To help some people out of some stuff they'd really rather not be in. To care for the sheep. Somebody asked me the other day, how large do you hope our church gets? And I said, only large enough that we as elders can take care of them. We as leaders. I mean that. We're at capacity right now for this eldership. We need probably double the men that we have right now to be able to care for the number of sheep we have right now. Maybe you haven't thought about this in a while, but they have um, the staff that they try to take care of. And then beyond that, they try to take care of a community group that all of them are involved with. And then they're involved in what we call shepherding groups, where every single one of the sheep in this church has been placed under a shepherd. That could be up to, I think Dow said he's got 37 in his group. That's too many. We have to have some other shepherd hearts to help us love and care for people. I don't want to bring another person in here. I'd rather go to another church, please, where they can be loved on by people. If we can't love on them, if we can't mature them and grow them in Christ, let them go to some other place where there's more leaders who will do that. So that's one reason why we're, we're pressing right now. We need more elders, we need more shepherds, but we're not talking about any elder or any shepherd, okay? We've outlined over the last couple of weeks who we're looking to lead us. And if you see them, please place their name on this ballot. Tell them you're going to be doing that. 
Even if they say, no, that's, that's just not where I'm at right now, it would be an encouragement to them that you see Christ and them to that level. We need help because we need to take care of our sheep. Number two, the second priority of an elder is to teach the gospel. He teaches the sheep first with his life. That's what we saw in that encouragement to the elder specifically in, under Peter's care. Living a life so vibrant and so legit, so real, so full of Christ that they're teaching if they never are speaking, but they need to speak. They need to be able to teach. They need to be able to share what Christ has done in them. Because if an elder can't share what Christ has done, how can they expect their sheep to minimally testify about that? That's all I have to say about that. And I'm honored to be able to work with the men that we call elders now, and I'm so excited about who God's about to lead us to. Church, I believe with all my heart that there's some great stuff we haven't even imagined yet that God's going to enable us to be a part of that we'll get to taste before we get to get to heaven and see some lives transformed we, we would never have seen without this next group of men coming. I believe that. God's preparing their hearts right now with these messages to say yes, where they may have been thinking no. But we need to pray about that, so let's do that now. Father in heaven, play is going to come here in a few moments after we sing this song. Um, to hand out, to talk to us about the process, to hand out or ballots, however that's going to fall, take place. But before we get to the procedure, we want to lift up one more time the need for the right people, the right person, God. And we need for you to give us the eyes to see. Now, if you brought someone here this morning and another misguided mess like this preacher, who has found that the only fullness in life comes in your son Jesus Christ, and they want to, they want to die to themselves, open up the doors and let you move in starting today. Would you please nudge their heart to come be baptized here in a minute? And if we have brothers or sisters here that, man, they're just not, they're, they're not capable of voting for anybody right now because their life is in such a mess and they need a brother or sister to be praying with them and over them to help them break free from some stuff that Satan has got their, his talents in them with. Please, God. We want to sing about your love one more time. Wow. I just gripped my heart a few moments. You deserve every word that we're about to sing to you. And will you allow your love to penetrate people's hearts, see them saved this morning, possibly renewed this morning. But, Father, I'm praying for this church that that love will so remain with us throughout this entire process that that's first and foremost who we want to see, someone who's loving like Jesus. And we ask us humbly in Jesus' name and everyone said.